This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is the Bite Size Business Breakfast from Friday, December the 23rd, our last show before Christmas. Uh, and we spoke all things SBF, Sam Bankman freed. Why? Because, well, he has sort of been freed, but not. He has to go and live with his mum and dad. Um, released on bail, $250 million bail, uh, with the directive that he had to go and live with his parents. Uh, can he afford the bail? Do his parents want him? Uh, just a couple of the questions that were posed by the team a little earlier on. Plus, um, having been introduced to uh, GPT, the new Genie app, AI technology taken to a new extreme, it seems that not only us have been impressed by in-studio, but also Google a little bit concerned, rising something of a red flag about the new technology that could... Uh, if it lives up to its potential, certainly be uh, a risk to Google's uh, purpose uh, and value in the market. We also spoke all things energy with Robin Mills, the CEO of Kamar Energy. Uh, he joined uh, us on the line earlier on to look back at the year that was, but more specifically to look ahead to the year that might be, his uh, predictions for 2023 and some of the energy headlines we could expect to see. Um, it is the festive period. It is the holiday period. It is a time for celebration and, of course, a whole load of spending as well. Uh, And David White is rubbing his hands in anticipation. He's the head of store operations and buying for the Middle East retail group overlooking Hamleys here in the region. They've seen uh, some extraordinary footfall in recent weeks. David came in to talk about the type of toys that people have been buying this year. Rather interestingly, it's a little bit retro as well. Uh, plus, the football might have come to a conclusion, but the number crunching continues. Yet the World Cup uh, is, of course, done and dusted. Uh, and uh, a number of organisations have been looking at the numbers coming out of the World Cup, be that uh, eyeballs, be that media, be that spending in and around the stadiums as well. We had a little look at those in more detail right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast. <laughs> Flicking through the international papers, where we are once again counting the cost of the World Cup, but this time it's about the punters. Look who we are, we are the dreamers, we make it happen, cause we can see it. Here's to the ones that keep the passion. Oh, well, you've got the girls in the production booth dancing. That was John Cook, the Korean pop star, singing at the opening ceremony of the FIFA World Cup. Seems like a long, long time ago. Producer Truti, of course, was in South Korea for much of that, being a fluent Korean speaker and a big fan of Korean culture. So, thank you, John Cook, for that. Uh, but that was then. This is now. Here's the headline on Bloomberg. Qatar World Cup fans spend 39% more at stadiums than in Russia. Fans spent 39% more. This is in-stadium spend than Russia, and this is according to data from Visa, one of the key sponsors of the World Cup, efficient payment provider to give them their full title. Now, you could only use Visa-branded cards in the venue. So if you turned up with the Amex or your Diners Club or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you weren't going to get a Coca-Cola. Who was the big spenders? Which country do you think were the biggest spenders? Which nationality? In the stadiums. Uh, England? Nope. Top five, but no. Um, Brandy Scott? Brazil. Uh, Do you know, and I've even looked at this survey, I am going to guess us or Saudi. 
Uh, I'll give you that. Saudi Arabia top, United Arab Emirates in third. Sandwiched in the middle was the United States, which is interesting nice. because Qatar's a long way from the United States, but they were second in the list. And fourth was one of your favorite countries, Mexico. Brandy Scott, of course, the US and Mexico are going to be hosting the next one. The final between the RGs and the French saw the largest spending of any game. Tournament organizers in Qatar were hoping the World Cup would provide a $17.17 billion boost to the economy. However, Bloomberg quotes Reuters, of all things, reporting that halfway through the event, the total number of international visitors wasn't likely to meet projections of 1.2 million over the month-long event. And Tom, that chimes with what you were hearing anecdotally from your sources in both the hospitality and sporting worlds, that actually Qatari hotels, Doha hotels, were not full to, to brim in the first couple of weeks of the tournament. No, because I think there were a few rule changes that spooked a few people just before kickoff in the first game, and that made people change their travel plans. So whilst there were nominal bookings in place uh, up to about a fortnight, even a, a week ahead of the, uh, the trip, there were a lot of late cancellations um, for a number of the hotels. These were the F&B rules. F&B rules, I think, uh, just because of the negative press that was being populated by must be said, majority of international media around the tournament ahead of the tournament itself um, prompted people to make a decision and to pull their plans. Uh, and then I think that's what's added to the pickup uh, midway through the tournament. Obviously, we heard from Lee and other people um, in and around the, the final, it was very difficult to find not just a hotel room, just a manger and a stable or anything like that, you know, anywhere in the city. Uh, but come the actual finals time, the city was full to capacity. And I think that's because, you know, the momentum built throughout the tournament as football took over, as as more and more, more and more reports came through of the great hospitality, of the great services, of just how efficient it was, more and more people started heading that way as well. So, yeah, it was, it was as with much, many of these big tournaments, a momentum builder. Do you know what's interesting? Bloomberg did a uh, sort of a study, um, a bit of back of the envelope maths, um, on the spend at the World Cup, but they were looking at currencies and who would find it most expensive because of the strong US dollar. Um, and it was the South Korean fans, the Korean won, the Japanese yen, and the British pound that were the lowest against the Qatari real. Okay. Well, I... I I would take issue with that because surely it was the Argentine peso because that's basically halved against the US dollar over the past year. And by extension, it's fallen by half against the Qatari real. So if we look, and I'm going to... Do well, I'm not saying it was an extensive study. They just spoke to fans from those three countries and pointed those three out. There wasn't actually a ranking. OK, fine. Um, Qatari real to Argentine peso. Right, so on Sunday for the final, you would have got... Um, what one category reel would have cost you 48 Argentine pesos? I, okay. Look, I've done Bloomberg a disservice there. It wasn't like it wasn't a ranking. Yeah, 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 no. They just spoke to some South Korean fans talking about what um, it had cost them to get there. They spoke to Japanese fans talking about the cost of a Coca-Cola in yen uh, versus a Coca-Cola that they were paying for at the venue, that sort of that sort of thing. They were just saying those three were particularly punchy. To the to that end as well, I think I've got a lot of Argentine friends, obviously a lot of Argentine residents up at where where, where I reside here, etc. Because of the polo link. Because of the polo connections, etc. Peso? What peso you talk of? 
it's dollars, dollars, dollars for Argentines at the moment. And that's what gets your head down in Argentina. You get paid in dollars, you, you spend in dollars, um, transfers in dollars as well. So, and I think that is indicative of the problems the peso has been having and the economy in Argentina in recent years. I'm looking at this. Five years ago, one Cateri Real would have cost you five pesos. Mm. Today, it's nearly 50 pesos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's devaluation. And they talk of that. If the, if the, you know, there are very few places that will change pesos for them now. So hence why they sort of demand no, I had dollars. A, a journalist friend I was working with um, in New Zealand a while ago married an Argentinian football player, funnily enough. <laughs> um, Results? Who, who was coaching in, in New Zealand. And they got married in, in Argentina. Um, near the village where he lived so that his family could actually um, attend rather than the sort of expense of flying to New Zealand. And trying to pay for the wedding, which you organise in advance, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're trying to pay things. So how much are the flowers going to cost? How much for the, the barbecue? How much for the... You couldn't pay for anything six months or three months in advance as you would do for a wedding because they knew the cost was going to change. Yeah. So she literally had to sort of roughly kind of price it up and go over with a load of cash to pay for whatever it would cost at the time. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. Beautiful, beautiful country. Few issues when it comes to the economy at the moment. That's not just me saying. Uh, you speak to a lot of the Argentinians as well. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we continue our Christmas nomics theme. We're going to speak to the boss of a toy store in a couple of moments' time. But before that, we can reveal the must have toys this Christmas. And a lot of them, like this one, are themed around Japanese video games. That is Pokemon. Joining us in the studio is the head of store operations and buying at the Middle East retail group, better known to you as Hamleys. David White, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So you say that three things are must-haves this Christmas. Pokemon, we just heard from, Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog. David, they were must-haves when you and I were growing up. What's going on? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, uh, many people listening will remember these brands growing up. Uh, there has been a massive resurgence in uh, these retro or vintage brands, and uh, uh, we are seeing huge, huge sales of these over the past months and going into Christmas. These are gifts that uh, the next generation want to, to be having as well. I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I've got the receipts to prove that Pokemon and Sonic the Hedgehog in particular are still very, very popular. We've got a Sonic the Hedgehog advent calendar under the Christmas tree at the moment. But what are people buying in terms of physical toys because Hamleys I don't think of as being you know video games and Fortnite and Call of Duty I think of it as being merch stuff so I mean this year uh, as well as these retro brands coming back uh, a lot of the legacy brands continue to be very strong so your Barbie Hot Wheels Nerf Marvel Lego Uh, Um, but, but what do people buy so if you're buying like a Pokemon toy or a Sonic the Hedgehog toy or a Barbie toy, what do kids today want? Do they just want, like you know, figures that they play with or do, do they want more than that? Does it have to be electronic? I'm just interested to know what type of Pokemon or Barbie toys people are actually buying. So the figures are still extremely popular. Um, there is an element of collectibles now. Uh, which is coming in. So again, you might even remember when you're when you're younger. But say trading cards, these are also very popular and expensive. Again, they are. <laughs> they're more expensive than when than when we were buying them. 
Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, they they really are. I mean, I I remember buying a box of trading cards last year. Sorry, Santa uh, sourced a box of trading of cards last year, and Santa had to pay hundreds of dirhams for each box of Pokemon cards. Yep, no, they are, but they are still uh, still very popular. Um, when we talk about technology, and you have uh, you have you have YouTubers or influencers, you also have this for toys, and you also have some uh, you also have some uh, young young people from across the world who have become very popular in unboxing, and they also have toy ranges, and these are also uh, doing extremely well. So, for what us. what would be an influencer or YouTuber led toy? this Christmas that parents are coming into your stores or, or, or stores like them saying, can I really have, can I get X? So there's a few. I mean, uh, Ryan's World is probably the most popular. Uh, again, in this region, we tend to have the same trends and popularity as you see in the US or Europe. Um, Vlad and Nikki, uh, Love Diana, who is actually based in this region, is very popular for girls. And again, they would so have... So Love Diana is a YouTuber or influencer, but now has her own range of merch. Yes. In, in the way that Huda Katan started out as a beauty influencer and blogger, but now has her own range of beauty products. Yes. Okay, fine. Let's talk about supply chains. This time last year, didn't matter what was popular. You bought what you could. You bought what was on the shelves because we had a massive supply chain crunch. To what extent have we solved that? So... I mean, yeah, over the past couple of years, um, it has been, we have seen availability really uh, impacted by this, uh, mainly due to container availability. Uh, however, that has stabilized this year, and I don't believe we would see any issues with availability this year. So if you have left it late, which I think we, we will do year after year, and we get later and later, um, you will still see the full range and availability of uh, toys across our stores. That's good to know. I know Brandy Scott has been emptying half of one of your stores over the past three days <laughs> for various small children. <laughs> She's familiar with loud musical instruments, Brandy Scott. That <laughs> didn't, Maybe. Didn't say that out loud. David, let's talk about competition. Okay, people want toys. These are the toys they want. I get it. How do you make sure that they buy them from you? For example, I was looking on your LinkedIn profile. You spent 15 years in the United Kingdom with Tesco, which is a massive supermarket chain, but they're really big in toy retailing now. They've got the scale uh, to, to buy in bulk. They've got massive distribution. And then, of course, there's online, isn't it? Okay, yeah, you might say, my kids really want um, Mario for Christmas. But I can go on any number of websites today and get that online. How does a, a Hamleys or a store like yours compete with that? So I think if you come to a Hamleys store, what sets us aside from other stores uh, is we are not a supermarket like Tesco's or other st uh, toy stores. Um, but we also provide an experience and customer experience is everything. Um, every person that walks through the door, we want to give them a magical memory an experience that we want them to leave with a smile on their face. And of course, uh, that would usually mean you would want to come and uh, buy from us as well. So uh, I'm sure for those of you who have been to our stores in Dubai Mall, Mall of Emirates, in Murdif, um, it's more than a toy store. Uh, it's all about providing, it's all about providing experiences. And I think you'll see more of this as well in the coming year because we are looking to build on that as well, that uh, you're not just coming in to buy toys, but you are coming in to uh, have some interaction as well. And what's the next frontier for you? Okay, you sell stuff, you sell merch. 
in, in three, four years' time, what else can you be selling to kids? Can you be selling subscriptions? Can you get bigger into the, the video gaming sector? Or, or is, is that not really your, your sweet spot? So there are a number of things we are looking at. You have touched on one of them, which is uh, gaming. Uh, gaming is becoming bigger. We do sell this. Um, but we are also looking at how we can bring the experience of gaming into our store as well. Uh, so maybe more on that next year. It's a busy time for you. Going to let you go, David. Thanks very much indeed for your time ahead of store operations and buying for the Middle East retail group. Hamley's is under you. What are the next 48 hours hold in store for you personally? Oh, Running around? Yeah. How many people leave it to the last minute? Well, <laughs> you, well uh, a lot. So they call, they actually, call it Super tw- Saturday in the US, don't they? Yeah, so 23 and 24 uh, of December is uh, is our busiest trading days of the year. Uh, we expect that to be the same this year. 24th falling on a Saturday as well. Uh, and uh, I think maybe less people have traveled this year as compared to previous years in the UAE. So we expect... Uh, we expect a hell of a couple of days. So, <laughs> Good luck with that, David. Appreciate you getting up early to speak with us this morning. And appreciate you wearing a Christmas jumper. Thank you. Which we will post <laughs> on our social media channels, David White. From Hamley's Group, this is the Business Breakfast, Dubai I 103.8 FM. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Indeed we are. And helping us to guide us through it this morning is Robin Mills. He's the CEO of Camar Energy, consultancy based here in the UAE. Robin, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Hi, good morning, everyone. We're going to get to your crystal ball predictions for 2023 shortly. First of all, though, let's quickly look through some of the big stories of the week. And for you, the biggie was in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi Energy Group Adnoc buying a 25% stake in the Austrian energy group OMV. Now, I struggle to make sense of this one because Abu Dhabi and OMV go back an awfully long way. So in simple terms, what's happened and what's changed? Yeah, so effectively, this is, is moving the asset, uh, the, the stake in OMV from Mubadala to, uh, to, to Adnoc. So Mubadala for a long time has held this 24.9% stake in, in OMV. Um, and that's now trans- effectively transferred and sold to, to Adnoc. Um, Adnoc has a deep relationship with OMV too. They're, they're, they're partners in, in, uh, in Borealis and Bruges, which is, is a petrochemical group, which has assets in, in the UAE as well. Um, so it's really, I think, just moving the, this, this, this stake in, in OMV under a kind of, a, I guess, a more natural and a closer uh, partner to, to the Austrian oil company. I can't help but thinking there might be a link between another story we had this month, which was Masaba Al-Kabi, CEO of Mabadala's UAE investments platform, moving from Mabadala to Adnoc just a couple of weeks ago. He's a very experienced guy, Masaba Al-Kabi, and has had experience in what was Mabadala Petroleum. Do we know if these two are tied? Well, uh, you know, as you say, Masaba has a very experienced guy. He was at Adnoc uh, early in his career, and then he, he had longer run at Mubadala and now back to Adnoc. And Adnoc has said, you know, as part of his appointment that they're, they're basically beefing up their international presence. They're looking at, at building their, their international business, and particularly in petrochemicals and gas, which is where a lot of Masaba's uh, experience is. So, you know, I, I think, um, I don't know if the two are directly connected, but it makes sense that they're, uh, that they're building that, that international uh, asset base already. Let's talk about NEOM in Saudi Arabia, the futuristic city that they're building. And you've been looking at a deal that they've signed about green hydrogen. Just remind us what is green hydrogen and then tell me why this Saudi deal is significant. Yeah, so really you know, t- two ways of making energy uh, climate friendly hydrogen. One is, is from fossil fuels with carbon capture, which we call blue hydrogen. The other one is from renewable energy. I mean, basically splitting water into 
into hydrogen and oxygen uh, using renewable energy, and that's green hydrogen. Uh, NEOM, the project at NEOM is, is one of the first in the region on a very large scale to make green hydrogen. They'll use solar and, and wind power. There's a few others around in the UAE and, and Egypt and Oman and, and elsewhere. NEOM, probably the most advanced so far, and on a huge scale, it's, it's a $5 billion project. So uh, an extremely interesting, a real kind of trade trailblazer for the region. Um, and, and NEOM, a couple of days ago, just secured financing for this project. So uh, we're very, very important to see how quickly that progresses. Where do you stand on the hype cycle when it comes to hydrogen? Is it all hype or is there some substance to it as well? Well, you know, hydrogen is an absolutely critical part of the future energy system because it does a lot of things that, that renewable energy can't do on its own. Uh, for example, it, it can power uh, ships and planes over long distances. It can power heavy industries like steel and, and petrochemicals and fertilizers. So really critical parts of the, of the energy industry that we need to decarbonize. Um, now, there is a, a huge amount of interest. Interest often goes along with hype. There, there are many, many projects and new technologies. You know, not all of them will succeed. Um, and we won't really start seeing large-scale green and blue hydrogen on the market until 2025, 26. So we're going to see a few years where it looks like nothing's happening and, and the market isn't, isn't moving along. Um, but then, then kind of in the middle of this decade, we should really see it uh, starting to turn into real projects. Right then, Robin, time to get out your crystal ball and give it a good rub because your three predictions for 2023. First of all, global natural gas prices will be substantially lower than this year. And in some ways, that's already happening. But talk us through this one. Well, you know, this year we've seen crazily high global natural gas prices and, and particularly in, in Europe and Asia because of the um, firstly, because of a shortage of gas and, and a rebound in, in the global economy, but then really, of course, very much exacerbated by the, 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 the Russian war in Ukraine and the cutoff of, of, of most Russian gas supplies to Europe. Europe has looked around the world for where else it can get gas and that, of course, has driven up prices. Now, people are saying, well, basically, there'll be almost no Russian gas into Europe next year. That means an energy crisis. It means prices will be very high. Um, but I think factors are working against this as well. And we've already seen this this winter, as you say, Europe has improved its efficiency. Um, Europe, a certain amount of industry has closed down. Europe is boosting renewable energy capacity. Uh, and I think Europe is getting on the path to finding its way out of this trouble. Um, uh, it won't fully be out of it until much later in the decade. But I, I do think next year will be an easier year than, than this year, as long as European policymakers don't do anything silly. I'm looking at Dutch gas futures in Europe, which is kind of a benchmark for the gas that Europe needs for electricity. Peaked in the middle of summer at around about 350, but they've fallen over the past 24 hours below 100. That's not quite back to where we were before the war in Ukraine, but it's close. Yeah, I mean, we would, we would still have thought that current prices are, you know, if we go back a year or so or two years, we would have thought current prices are still insanely high. Um, but, but as you say, you know, a, a third of the very, very high levels of summer where, where it, it looked like we were in very, really desperate winter in Europe. Um, OK, we had a bit of a cold snap recently, but so far the winter has been relatively mild. That's helped. Europe has found alternative gas supplies and, and uh, so far is getting through things. Your second prediction for next year is that the UAE will make a major announcement on its climate policy. Explain your thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm not being too specific on uh, on this one, but you know, the UAE is hosting COP28, the the UN climate conference in November, uh, COP27 in Egypt uh, just concluded, and the UAE already has really tightened up its its climate targets for 2030. It came out uh, uh, about a month ago with a much stricter target. 
the UAE in the run to COP, of course, it'll be very uh, much uh, keen to show what it's doing on the, on the climate front. There's a number of big things, for example, it's a UA hydrogen strategy, which is being worked on at, at the moment by the Ministry of Energy. We'll see some results on that soon, I think. Um, but in the run up to COP28 in November at, at, at Dubai Expo, we will see, I think, some, a major announcement uh, on, on climate policy and, and, and projects, which will be... Uh, will be very interesting for where the UAE is going on, on low-carbon energy. No, well, I tend to agree. You can imagine those conversations have started some time ago. Sultan al-Jabba, government minister and head of ADNOC, is going to be saying to his team, we need a big announcement when COP28 happens, some kind of flagship uh, paper-waving exercise, surely, Robin, yeah? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, we've got a few hints of uh, things that, that, that there could be. Um, but you know, I think there'll be some, no doubt some surprises as well and hopefully, you know, big positive things. Uh, finally, the oil price, Robin. We'll, we'll park your third prediction, which is uh, for 2023, because we haven't got time to do it justice. Technical breakthroughs for batteries, carbon capture and green hydrogen. We'll have you back to talk about that. But what I do want you to, to use your crystal ball for is to give me an oil price this time next year. Looks like we're going to be around $80 at Christmas this year. When we're tucking into our turkey on the 25th of December 2023, where do you see Brent crude? Yeah, you know, it's been a crazy couple of years, of course. Uh, and, and, and yet after this year, we've ended, ended the year almost where we started. If you predicted this at the start of the year, you'd have said, oh, pretty boring year, not much oil price action. Uh, of course, you know, we know what happened in, in, in the middle of the year. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult one. I think next year, you know, I think the start of the year is going to be tight. Uh, the, the Russian uh, sanctions on Russia from Europe and, and the US are coming into effect they're getting tighter. I think it'll drive prices up. If you want a number, I'm going to say, I'm going to be boring. I'm going to say 80 again. Ah, thanks very much indeed. We like that consistency. Robin Mills is the CEO of Camar Energy, uh, talking to us live from the nation's capital, Abu Dhabi, this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, we are looking at what's making headlines in the run-up to Christmas. You should have had your lockdown jailbird sing Why the jailhouse rock, or the not the jailhouse rock, as the case may be. This is Sam Bankman-Fried, and he's been released on a $250 million bond while awaiting trial for fraud and other criminal charges. That is a New York federal judge ruled on Thursday. He stepped out of U.S. District Court in Manhattan, flanked by his parents, his legal team and court security at around about two o'clock yesterday afternoon. And it is very cold in New York at the moment. Now, the terms of his personal recognizance bond were agreed to by prosecutors and SBF's lawyers. He's going to face his next hearing, Judge Ronnie Adams presiding, on January the 3rd. So only about 10 days away where he'll enter his plea and he will be arraigned. Uh, a recognizance bond is, we are told, a written commitment from the accused to appear in court when ordered. In return, his camp would not be required to meet the full collateral requirements on the bail. And that's interesting because the question you asked was, has Sam Bankman-Fried still got $250 million? A month ago, he's one of the richest people in the world with 20-odd billion. Not anymore. The bond was secured by equity in his family home and by the signatures of his parents and two other individuals with, quote, considerable assets. So, he's out. The question I have is, who are these parents of his? Because he's got to stay with them. Are you blaming the parents, Richard D? Well, some people are. So let's have a little look at this. Uh, his, both of his parents are Stanford law professors. 
So they are fine, upstanding pillars of the community. First of all, his mum, Babs. Barbara Freed, she's the Freed in Bankman Freed, or to give her her full title, the William W. and Gertrude H. Saunders Professor of Law Emerita at Stanford Law School within Stanford University. She's a very well-recognised law professor and a keen campaigner and fundraiser for the Democratic Party. Then I give you his dad, who also has a bio on the Stanford Law School page, Joe or to give him his full title, Joseph Bankman, the Ralph M. Parsons Professor of Law and Business at Stanford University. He is also a qualified clinical psychologist, which might come in handy this weekend over Christmas, around the turkey at the Bankman-Fried table. The, have a listen to this. What do you buy someone for Christmas who might be looking at a lengthy stretch in jail? <laughs> I I could suggest a few yes, things, exactly. possibly not suitable for the eight o'clock hour of business breakfast. So his parents are absolutely so, legit, OK, on, on paper. Have a listen to this guy. He's Kevin O'Leary. He's a celebrity investor. We've spoken to him before, Shark Tank and others. Canadian, based in the United States, long-term investor in FTX and a brand ambassador for FTX. This soundbite has been dug out by a lot of people on social media. This was Kevin O'Leary speaking a while ago about why he's so confident that Sam and FTX would never go bust. I have to disclose, I'm a paid spokesperson to, uh, to FTX and a shareholder there too. And big advocate for Sam because he has two parents that are compliance lawyers. If there's ever a place I could be that I'm not going to get in trouble, it's going to be at FTX. Uh-oh. Kevin O'Leary's lost at least $15 million, possibly more. However, Bloomberg reporting today, are his parents really whiter than white? This is their headline. Sam Bankman-Fried's Stanford professor parents are tangled in the FTX probes. This is one of the indictment statements that we heard from one of the regulators, the futures regulator, over the past 48 hours. Bankman freed his parents and other FTX and Alameda employees used FTX customer funds for a variety of personal expenditures, including luxury real estate, private jets, documented and undocumented personal loans, and personal political donations. The SEC, stock market regulator, added that property purchases totaled tens of millions of dollars. The newly appointed CEO of FTX, a lawyer, John J. Ray III, remember, he's the guy Mm -hmm. who bailed out Enron 20 years ago, or presided over uh, Enron 20 years ago, confirmed at a House Financial Services Committee hearing on Tuesday that, quote, the family did receive payments. So... They were on the payroll and there was real estate in their names. Curiouser and curiouser. I have been looking at something that Tom gave me for Christmas, um, which was an introduction um, to chat GPD but better, uh, which showed me that I didn't actually need to do any of the study that I've just done or indeed write any of the essays. Um, It was the genie. For anyone who wasn't listening, Tom, the genie is... Uh, it's an app. It's an AI app um, that I was introduced to earlier on this week, uh, which basically is a sort of better version of an Alexa. It's, it's a more erudite version of an Alexa rather than just playing rubbish songs like Bublé or something like that for you on order and wake you up in the morning. They sort of do all the work for you as well. 
Yeah, and this is the chat GPD. G- I keep wanting to call it GDP, GPD. I keep falling over the, the letters. Chat GPT, which Georgia Tolly GT went into in some detail on the agenda a wee while ago, is the sort of the latest fabulous AI um, bot bot on the internet um, that basically you ask it a question and as long as what you're asking is more than a year old, it will effectively write you an essay, a research report, a speech, whatever you need. Um, on it, I put in one of my essay questions and it did a pretty good job, which made me wonder why I had bothered. Um, and it's freaking Google out, um, according to the New York Times. Mm. They have issued what has been called a code red <laughs> over chat GPT, the uh, AI chatbot, um, because they're asking, well, what does it mean for Google? If you can put any question into chat GPT, why are you Googling anything? True. Sunder Pichai's worried the CEO of Google and its parent company Alphabet have, of course, participated in several meetings around Google's AI strategy. They have directed numerous groups, groups reportedly to refocus their efforts on addressing the threat that chat GPT poses to its search engine business, which, of course, is the cash machine for Google, isn't it? Search-related advertising is how they print their money. Yeah, so if this is search but better, does that mean that Google effectively just becomes Nokia, the company that we thought, or BlackBerry? Do you know what I mean? One of those things we thought we couldn't live without until suddenly we were pretty much living without them. Yeah, it's a, it's a valid point, isn't it? You can understand the concern, but it does, uh, it does address that, that issue that has been an issue, you know, the concerns that people have that companies like Google, Meta, what they're called these days, um, have just become so large and influential um, that no one will be able to touch them. Uh, well, it looks like they can, because if you can develop the technology just a little bit better and a little bit quicker, faster, then suddenly you're not irrelevant. I think Google is obviously such a huge part and parcel of our lives and the company that, 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 that oversees it. But nothing wrong with a bit of competition. Nothing indeed. I think it's going to be the next privacy concerns, though, because I had to um, to use chat GPT itself. I had to put in my um, I either have to sign in with, ironically, a Google or a social media app or your own email or anything else. Um, So effectively, it knows who you are and everything you've searched for. Right. How much would Google pay for GPT tomorrow? Yeah, very good point. Quite a lot. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.